How about if we try finding a book called Galatians? Something different, huh? Galatians chapter number 4. Right there, toward the middle of the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, they're in a series there, and they kind of rhyme when you're trying to memorize them. Chapter 4, verse number 4, the verse I want to use to kick off our little Christmas theme for several weeks. Here we're going to enjoy time speaking about the birth of Christ, and I, I look forward to that very, very much. Um, there is a phrase in Galatians 4 that I want to emphasize as the theme of our study. Verse number 4 says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There's so much here that's wonderful. I can't wait to talk it through with you here. So let's talk to the Lord about it first. Heavenly Father... Thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can pull out even the smallest piece and and have a feast as we enjoy what you have shared with us and how meaningful it is to us. It's great that you love us like this. And as we focus upon this little passage today, we thank you for it. Pray that you challenge our hearts with it too. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to work with the phrase, the fullness of the time. The fullness of the time. That that phrase is a fascinating one to me. It appears in different ways in the scriptures. In some cases, it will speak of some big event that's just about to happen, or it does happen. And it may say, at the right time. It might say, uh, in due time. It might say, in the fullness of time. That little phrase pops up here and there. And and I've thought through 30 years of Christmas messages. Why haven't I talked on yet? And I thought, this little phrase has always been intriguing to me. And maybe I just want to spend some time on it. Um, So we're going to do that this year. I hope to to focus entirely on the concept of the timing of the birth of Christ. I've spent this year with you, as you know, um, in a particular study of God, James 5, of course. We've walked through that very carefully and spent a lot of time, I know. But the key was that we are dependent on Him, that we have to trust Him, right? Be patient, be patient, strengthen your heart. Ah, I always leave that one just to see if anyone remembers that one. Yes, don't complain. So we learned that we have to depend on Him all the time. And that's what prayer was taught as well, how we depend on Him. We moved from there to Lamentations, and we went through a very difficult time in history. But there we see the greatness of His mercy and His faithfulness and the hope that we have in our Savior. And I'm glad for that passage. We needed that too. Then we spent our last month in Psalm 145. The unsearchable greatness of our Lord and 
and the theme there and, and how even to the best of our ability, we can't say it all. We can't even comprehend it all. He's so great. And I thought, well, how do I finish up the year of study that's been focused on him and his greatness and his faithfulness and in the hope he gives to us and all the rest too? And I thought, this is where we're going to spend our Christmas time without changing the theme of what we've been up to. Talking about the timing. The timing of the events that we're going to examine this month. And really, with this kind of study, I come away with an even greater appreciation of our Lord, and specifically, His control of time. His control of time. Some people may find this a strange phrase, but I'm just going to say it the way I understand it. God created time. If time existed before God, which wasn't the case, or existed in keeping with God, then it would be equal with God. And it would be outside of his controlling ability. I believe he created everything, and time is part of that. That can blow your circuits a few when you try to think it through. Really? Yes. Because he's eternal. And we operate with clocks. And so it's hard to wrap our brain around something that's so huge. And so I have no trouble with speaking about his control of time. I have no trouble with that. But did you know that according to an article I read this past week, the evangelical world was rocked in 1994 with a publication of a little book called The Openness of God. You say, rocked? Really? Did you know it was rocked? I brought that up to my daughter yesterday. She asked me, what are you working on? And I was just working on some of these thoughts. And, and uh, I said, well, it's a study on open theism. And she says, what's that? I said, well, obviously your real world wasn't rocked. You don't even know what it is. And I'm guessing that some of you don't know what it is either. And maybe never heard of it. And didn't know that we were rocked in 1994. Well, I'll tell you what they came up with. This thing called open theism... Um, one man said this, that this is the most significant controversy of the doctrine of God in evangelical thought. It's a raging debate. Obviously, it's not that raging if we're not talking about it much, huh? What is it? Why is it important? It's called open theism, all right? Open theism. And it really has to do with our simplify on theological terms, our simplify it is this. Who's in charge? Who knows? Who knows what's happening? Who's sovereign in all these things? Well, the open theists, as I'm going to call them here, um, they want to be labeled as evangelical. They want to be labeled as among us, all right? And there are some that write books, and we use them, and things like that. And we say, well, are they of us, or are they not of us? Well, they're struggling with an issue. At least the guy who originally thought up the idea was struggling with an issue of, why is there evil in our world? And unfortunately, we can prove there's lots of that. That's our newspaper. That's our headlines on our websites, right? A lot of bad things in this world. 
And whoever the person was that was trying to initially deal with this couldn't figure out why there was evil and what God was doing about it. You know, that's not really a new question. Go back to Job. All right? But here they, they conclude. You know what Job's conclusion was, by the way? God is sovereign. That's what it comes down to. All right? Well, they haven't concluded that that was right yet, so they're still looking. And they concluded that since there is evil, then God has some answering to do. How can it appear that evil can dominate? In other words, they're not too sure that the words omnipotent or omniscient are the best words to describe God. They really want to take the omni off the front of the words and say he's still powerful or he still knows, but he doesn't know everything and he's not all powerful. Are you happy with this so far? Probably not. I look at it and say, yuck, do I really have to do this? But this is important. They think they have a better idea of God. Let's say that God really doesn't know the future and isn't completely powerful. But God knows that the future has, this is their reckoning, God knows that the future has many possibilities and his part, out of pure love, is to respond to those things that happen to somebody who's operating with a free will. You know what that makes God? Not the initiator, but the responder. Who's the initiator? We are. Do you know what? We've just reversed places. Do you know that? We've just reversed places theologically with their concept. So, They go and say this, if God is omniscient, he cannot be omnipotent. You like that? Listen, if God is omniscient, he cannot be omnipotent because if God knew the future with infallible certainty, he cannot change it. In which case, he cannot be omnipotent. Isn't that crazy? Make your head spin. And if God can change the future then he cannot have infallible knowledge of it. So they're using one attribute against the other and saying God can't be both. He's got to be one or the other. And what they do is somehow answer the question of evil to prove that God has to be blameless in this. They're going to help him. All right, They're going to help him out with it. And they say that uh, even though evil exists in the world, God was unsure of the outcome of this evil, and so he's not to be blamed for it. So, by taking away his omnipotence, they think they gave him an out for the evil that exists in the world. Make sense? Don't try to make sense of it. It's, it's nonsense, folks. But this is what this big thing was that they said rocked the evangelical world. Um, they emphasized that God's most fundamental character trait is love, And that trait is unchangeable. And this concept of God is that he's deeply moved by creation and he has a variety of feelings in response to it. So their picture is interesting. They picture God in a chess match. All right? 
And God is playing this game, and he doesn't know the outcome, though he desires to win, of course. He doesn't know the outcome, but he knows with every move that says the opponent has a multiple of options of what they can do. And so God is operating this way in that when his opponents make their move, then God has all these options to answer to that move. And I got a couple of thoughts just reading through that and trying not to lose my mind. One of this is, their God is a God who does not know the future perfectly. He knows the potentials of the future, but he doesn't know the future perfectly. And I don't know about you, but I'd have a hard time trusting a God like that. I'd rather have my God know the future. (laughs) And especially if he tells me of my future, going to live with him forever. I don't want that to be a potential, folks. I want that reality. And if he said so, I want to believe him. And I don't want him to surprise me someday and say, oops, you know, there was another option here. (laughs) I don't like that. I don't think God is like that. That's one thing that concerns me with this, is because I don't want a God who's just as surprised of Monday as I am. Second thing is this. If God is playing in a chess match, match, who is the opponent who's on equal terms with him? Because you start thinking this through, and they're concerned about evil. And if they want evil to be on the other side of the table playing with him, then he's putting Satan as an equal. And I don't like that, do you? No, I don't like that one. Or, if you don't want it to go that far, the other opponent, which they really bring up the most, is man's free will. And when you set man's free will on the other side, you are equating that with God. And that scares me to death. I do not like that one either. I have a free will, but I don't like it. It never does me any good. I'll tell you the truth. It doesn't ever lead me to God. It's more like Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And that's where mine would take you if I let it do it. I don't trust that thing. Some people put a lot of stress in theirs, I know. Maybe they got a better one than I do. But I don't think it, it, that the decisions we make are what God worries about all day long in altering his plans. So, I said this before you, because I know you don't like it. I don't like it. But the open view of this future affirms that this God created the world with a lot of possibilities, but with no certainties. And creatures choose to oppose him however they want. And it consistently affirms, this is their words, that God entered into a somewhat risky endeavor in creating the world. That's their conclusion. I actually talked to a a man who believed this, he came into my office in Indiana, where I was pastoring, and came into my office one day and said, hey, you got some time? I want to talk. I said, okay. He had this great big, you know, packet of material and a couple of books, I think, and sat down and started to talk to me about open theism and all this kind of stuff. And I'm listening to him just rattle on and on and on, and he'd say, what do you do with that? How do you answer that? Where do you go with that? Because it could be an endless circle, you know, trying to discuss things with people that believe this. And... 
it just so happened that morning, I believe, I had been reading my devotions in Isaiah, and something stuck in my head. And just as he's talking, it was like, oh, okay, this is easy. So I asked him a simple question. I said, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, I said, the verse says, God says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will perform all my de- desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. I said, okay. It, in that verse, it talks about Cyrus, Cyrus making a declaration to the Jews to go to Jerusalem and build a temple. 700 B.C. Cyrus was not even born yet. 538 B.C. is when he made the declaration to go. That means 160 years before the declaration, God called that man by name. Now tell me he didn't know the future. This man, he listened to that for a minute and he says, you know what? I'm going to have to go study that one a little bit. <laughs> he got up and left. Never saw him again. It, you just laid out in front of him and said, but this is what Scripture says. You could do that with anybody, folks. When they come to you with things contrary to the truth, just give them the truth. Because this is powerful. It's sharp. It's active. It cuts between... Joint and marrow, it does all these wonderful things. And God always accomplishes much through his word. The fact is, you can study this through and through, page after page after page, and you could get a Cyrus, or you could understand that God's knowledge and God's control, he knew when to do that, why to do that, everything was accomplished. Why would a Persian king, of all things, call for Jerusalem Jews to go back and build their temple? unless God was in in charge. The whole Christmas story, by the way, is evidence that we have a God who's not only omniscient, but he's also omnipotent. The Christmas story shows us that every single part of it. And that's why I want to spend issue of time with you. Galatians 4. It says it so beautifully here. Look at it. But when the fullness of the time came, God... He's the subject here, sent forth his son. Let's unpack it a little bit, all right? Let's look at this. The fullness of the time, pleroma, that's a wonderful Greek word. Fullness, the, the Greek word play, rao, is to fill it up, to make it complete. If you had a glass and you were pouring water into it or something, you'd take it right to the rim. I have this terrible thing with my coffee pot, or my coffee maker. We're at war. It's constantly that way. Sometimes I forget to put the cup in it, and it doesn't tell me that. And it just spills it all out all over the floor. I did that twice in one day. It's terrible. So this time, I had a cup under it, just two days ago. I put a cup under it, pushed the button, went, took care of things. Came back and said, I never pushed that button. Pushed it again. You know what happens then? You get plerao. The cup fills, but even more. It spills out. It comes out over the side because you can't put two cups of coffee in one cup. But I found that out too. That's the nature of this word. It's absolutely full. All right? 
That's why we use fullness sometimes. It's the Greek word. That means it's absolutely full. It's complete. It's to the top. It's at the brim. It is ready. The time is ready. That's a certain time he's talking about. That certain time came. That means somebody knew when that time was ready. Right? Somebody knew that before that time wasn't ready. Somebody was watching when that time would be ready to respond. Somebody was in charge of when that time was up. Who's the subject of the verse? God is. When that time was up, God acted. He was watching. He was in control of it. He knew when it would be and how it would be. And then he did what he did. When that time was up, he was ready. And what did he do? He sent his son. He sent his son. Now, that's a really cool phrase, too. We're going to get into more of this. But if you send your son, that means your son already existed to send him. Right? He didn't make his son. He sent his son because his son already exists. That's another story. We'll get to that soon. But here, how did he send his son? Look at the rest of the verse. Born of a woman. So there's another miracle right there. And we know that's true, too. He had to be born of a woman. In what setting? Born under the law. For what purpose? Verse 5. There's a henna there in the Greek. I love that little henna. That means, get ready. This is why he did it. The purpose is that he might redeem. Redeem those under the law. And it gets real personal that we might receive the adoption of sons. It comes right to us. This is his purpose and all that. And what does that say to you and me? When we just look at the simple things that this verse says, God knew the time. God knew when the time was ready. God had a plan to send his son at that time. God had a plan that his son would be born a baby through a woman. God had a plan that his son would be born when the law dominated. God had a plan to bring about the redemption of others through his son. Carried all the way down to us and we were saved because God did this at that time. All right. So it sounds to me like he not only is omnipotent, but he's omniscient. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. There's no surprises here. It's not reactionary. He's initiating it, you see? I love this picture. It's something that excites me, because I don't think God's being risky here. I don't think there's any risk at all in what this is doing. When you say, in the fullness of the time, that means it's definite. There's some interesting things we do with Christmas. We celebrate it on December 25th. Why? It sounds like a good idea, right? We needed some day to pick. We'll talk about that more too. I'll give you some more specifics on why we picked that day. But nevertheless... It doesn't say in Scripture that, does it? We never see December 25th, and some people argue about that, and they say, well, they put it in January, some put it in other times of the year. And I'm not going to debate all that stuff either, because it's not in the Word. It doesn't say on December 25th he was born. 
And that'd be hard to do anyway because they were Hebrew. So you'd have to learn their calendar too. All right? So anyway, set that aside for a minute. But think of the times that had been brought together that were fulfilled to bring this about. I just had a little shopping list in my head. I said, think of the Roman domination of the day. They say the value of the Roman style of control and how they set things up for the ease of moving their armies was to build roads. And they put roads all over the place, which made things so much nicer for everybody that touched it. Not only that, but the politics, you put all kinds of figures into the Roman concept. God had a plan that the Romans were dominating in those days. I'll give you more details in just a second on that. But he also said in his plan that they also need to be able to speak a language that's universal. And 300 years before, he brought in Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great told everybody, speak Greek. I still think it's a great idea. Um, he set it up so the world operated on a simple language they could communicate with. That was valuable to the writing of the New Testament and getting the message out to all the world. Very important. God, I think, had a plan in that. huh? How about a man named Caesar? Maybe God needed a Caesar on the throne at the time. Because Caesar liked money. And what did Caesar do? Set up for taxes. And what did that do for us in the Christmas story? It brought a guy named Joseph and a guy named, or a gal named Mary, all the way down to Bethlehem. And who would travel 60 miles when you're great with child? Unless you're paying your taxes. <laughs> she had to go. Otherwise, he probably would have said, hey, why don't you just stay home? But she had to sign up too. Part of the story. What about a guy named Simeon, who's in the temple every single day looking for the Messiah? Incredible story of Simeon. Faithfully looking and looking and looking in the day that Jesus was brought in by Mary and Joseph. Bingo, I saw him. Is that timing or what? Doesn't sound very risky to me. God must have been in charge of that one too. What about shepherds working in the field at night? I don't know if they worked every night in the field or not. Or if that was significant to that time or that year. But we know they had to be there. And they had to be tending their sheep. Because the angels were appointed to show up that night. It would be terrible to show up to an empty field. God knew where they were. And he sent his angels to declare the message. And then they went down and saw it themselves. What about the king ruling over Jerusalem? His name was what? Herod. He said, not a good guy. No, he wasn't a good guy. But did he need to be there for that story? Absolutely so. You put in all the things about Herod, the wise men coming to see him. We needed a Herod that was so jealous and ruthless to fit the story. God had one. That was Herod. We read of Herod the Great and the things that he did. The wise men coming from afar, following a star of all things. I wonder where that came from. An accident? I don't think so. They followed a star. It was predicted in, in Malachi that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah by the name of Elijah. And Jesus later named Elijah as who? John the Baptist. 
Malachi told that 450 years before John the Baptist was on the scene. And we needed a forerunner. What a surprise! We had one! John the Baptist was there. Elizabeth's pregnancy, the mother of John the Baptist, that was a big miracle too. A shock to everybody around them. But was that important to the story? Absolutely. You had to have her. And you had to have uh, Zacharias, her husband. You had to have that baby born, John the Baptist. And being a relative of Mary, what a chance that was. Somebody's in charge. John the Baptist is born. Behold, the whole story of Bethlehem and the promise through Bethlehem. Micah talked about that in his prophecy. 700 B.C. He's talking about Bethlehem bringing forth the ruler. And who knew that? The scribes and the Pharisees, when Herod asked, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Bethlehem. God had already promised that. He couldn't be born in Jericho. He couldn't have been born on the road somewhere. He had to be in Bethlehem. wonder who was in charge. Who brought that about? Talk about Micah's prophecy. Oh, you want the big one? Most people don't know this. Take Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. If you want a countdown for the Messiah coming, Daniel does it. He tells you that when the moat and the, the walls are prepared of Jerusalem, you could count off 69 weeks. And you've got to do some math to do that. But if you add it up, from that day, 530-some B.C., until the 69 weeks, according to the pattern, is accomplished, it ends when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey the week before he died. And what is the prophecy? After the walls are built, the Messiah will be cut off in 69 weeks. You could have set a timer on that one. Because it worked just like that. Who would have thought of that back in 550 B.C.? Only somebody in charge of time. Who would have known and would have set that one. And said, watch, watch how that happens. And it's fascinating. You go on and on and on and on with these things. But let me give you one little quote here that I thought was really quite interesting. This man named Peter Stoner. He's the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. Sounds pretty important, huh? He's passionate about biblical prophecies. Uh, he worked with 600 students uh, to look at eight specific prophecies about Jesus. Only eight. And they came up with their mathematical formulas, the conservative possibilities for each one being fulfilled, and then considered the possibility that Jesus could have fulfilled eight of those. Right? Just eight. This is what they concluded. Uh, for all of those eight prophecies to be fulfilled was at the ratio of one to ten to the 17th power. And then they describe it. Let's visualize what possibilities there are. If you mark one of the ten tickets, you take these tickets, all right, you place them in a hat, 
all of them in a hat. You stir them up and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one. The chance of getting the right ticket is one in ten. That makes sense, right? One out of ten. So what's ten to the seventeenth power? Take that many silver dollars, lay them on the face of Texas. It's two feet deep. All right? That's how many possibilities there are here. Two feet deep over the whole course of the state of Texas, silver dollars. Take a blindfolded man, tell him you marked one of those silver dollars, and stirred it up in the state, and he can walk any way he wants in that state of Texas, pick up one. What is the chance he's picked up the one you marked? That's the equation of Jesus fulfilling Eight prophecies. I have a list of 55 prophecies he fulfilled perfectly. And that's a small number compared to the ones that are actually out there. Perfectly fulfilled. Most of those are related to his first coming. The ones on my list. 55 things he fulfilled in his first coming. Perfectly stated in the Old Testament Fulfilled in Jesus only in the New Testament. The nation will be blessed through Abraham. Yes. God's covenant through Isaac. Yes. The nation will be blessed through Jacob's offspring. Yes. The scepter will come through Judah. Yes. David's offspring will have an eternal kingdom. A virgin will give birth and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The Messiah will end up in Egypt. A ch- uh, the the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. Christ's ministry will destroy the devil's work. Jesus will have a sinless, blameless, blemish-free life and ministry. The Messiah will be humbled in order to serve mankind. Jesus would become the perfect sacrifice. Jesus would preach righteousness in Israel. Jesus would teach the parables. Christ's parables will follow deaf ears. The Messiah will be a stone that the people cause to stumble. Um, Christ's ministry will begin in, Jer- in Galilee. Christ would draw the Gentiles to himself. Jesus would have a miracle ministry. The Messiah would be fulfilled by, or preceded by a forerunner. Jesus would be gentle redeemer of the Gentiles. Jesus would be despised and rejected. Jesus would set the captives free. The Messiah will have a throne that is everlasting. The Messiah will bring an end to sin. Jerusalem will rejoice as the Messiah comes upon her donkey. He will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. His forerunner will come in the spirit of Elijah. Christ will be our Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, uh, none of the bones of Christ will be broken. The Messiah's blood will be spilled for atonement. Jesus will be lifted up and everyone will look on him and live. Christ's resurrection is prophesied. The Messiah will be forsaken. The Messiah will be scorned. The Messiah's suffering would include thirst. They would pierce both his hands and his feet. They would cast light lots for his clothing. He will cry out into your hands, I commit my spirit. Everyone will abandon the Messiah. They will plot to kill God's anointed. The Messiah will be quiet before his accusers. God's anointed will not see decay. The Messiah would be abandoned by those closest to him. The Christ will ascend into heavens to distribute gifts. The Christ's thirst will be quenched with vinegar and gall. The Messiah's resurrection is predicted. The Messiah will conquer death. The Messiah will be mocked and abused. God will raise up a prophet like Moses. 
God will raise up a faithful priest who does God's will. The Messiah will judge the world justly. The Messiah will have all authority over judgment. The Messiah will pour out His Spirit. The Messiah will usher in a new covenant. All of that's from the Old Testament. Everyone fulfilled by Jesus. Perfectly. Sound risky to you? God took a wild chance at that. He didn't know what was going to happen. He waited to see it all just unfold. And then he said, okay, I'll put my name to that one. You know better. We all know better. You read the phrase, and as simple as it says it, in the fullness of time, God. Wow. Just those words alone says it. How all of that would have changed if Joseph had chosen to divorce Mary. If Mary had said, no thanks, when Gabriel came to town. If the shepherds stayed in their fields. If the wise men stayed in the east. What if God hadn't been in control of time? What if God waited for it to happen, and then he responded to what man was going to do? What is the likelihood, then, that you and I would be redeemed today? You see? You see, I take it personally. It's not just theology. You're messing with my salvation, folks, when you go and tell me that my God's not in control. When he doesn't know the future. When he's not omniscient. When he's not omnipotent. Because I believe in a God who is. Galatians 4 says it to me, just in those words. Just in those words that we're looking at today. There are so many other things I want to discuss. But believe it or not, time is not helping me today. It just marches on. As you see, I am controlled by time. But God is not. God is not. Our time is full. I know. We have to come back to this. But I just want to express to you today, as we go into a season like this, let's know, let's know that what we celebrate, God has done. This is what He did. And we, of all people, know that. And when we go into this, you know, I'm very glad to say, I believe in an omniscient and an omnipotent God. And he loves me enough to send his son. That's amazing. That's amazing. Heavenly Father, we just got a little touch of something here today that speaks of how great you are. Truly you are. The world is going to contradict that in their words and in their theories and in their theologies. And they're going to present all kinds of things to make you look small and make them look big. But Lord, I'd rather just sit back, sit back and see how big you are. That amazes me, presses me. And I feel so, so much comfort in the fact that you are God, and that you love me. And I thank you, Lord, for that. I thank you for this time of year. As we think upon these things, as we think upon more in the days to come, we just rejoice in what you have done. Thank you for sending your Son. What a difference it's made in our lives. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.